Amen. Good morning. It's good to be back with you uh, after being out last week on vacation. Um, I'm excited to open up Luke 11 with you. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open that up. We're going to be verses 14 down to 36, which is kind of a longer passage. Um, There's a reason for that, more so than, Tim, if you don't get moving, we're going to be in Luke for the next 10 years of our lives. This is all going to fit together, and um, I'll kind of walk you through how that's, that's going to be the case. Uh, but before we do that, even, even kind of before we get to the point where I say, here's how we're going to handle this, we need to sort of set the table. Um, Garth Brooks was in town last night. I, don't, I, don't, I know like two Garth Brooks songs, and they would be the Garth Brooks songs that if you're a big country fan, you would groan that those are the two that I know. Thunder rolls. Um, and so I don't know a ton about Garth Brooks, but I do know about how like big concert tours work. Did you know that most of the time when, when someone like a big artist is on tour, they've got two full sets. And so while they're in one city, they actually send the other set, the other crew, all the other stuff to the next city ahead of them. And the two groups like that leapfrog one another all around the country. And the whole point is that they get there early and they get everything set up so that when the artist actually arrives, they can just basically walk into the venue, sound check, and be ready to go that night, while another whole set is setting up in the next city so they can do the next, that thing the next day. They get everything set up so that someone can just sort of walk in and perform. We need to get this passage like really set up so that it'll make sense. And so I'm gonna read the whole thing, and then we're gonna lay some groundwork, and then we'll kind of work our way through it. While I read this, because it's a little bit of a longer passage, I want to give you a few things to look for, listen for. Watch and listen for the presence of the word evil in this passage. Where does that word show up? What is it doing? What is that word evil attached to as we work through this passage? And then listen for three reactions to Jesus's kingdom activity and how Jesus responds to those three reactions. So if you've got Luke 11 opened up in front of you, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read all the way to verse 36. It says this. Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I drive out demons by Beelzebul, but if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest. It then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. 
As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. He said, Rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom from Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Take care then that the darkness or that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come together to behold the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus from your word to lift up praises that you keep hope alive because Jesus is alive. God, thank you for the truth that no matter what is going on in and around our lives, no matter what's going on in society around us, God, hope is alive because Jesus lives. God, help us to cling to that this morning. Help us to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. Help us to submit ourselves to your word, to your rule, and to your reign in our lives. God, help us to take heart in the fact that the end of this whole thing is secure. We know what it is, that you will fully and finally triumph. God, help us to keep those things in view this morning As we work through Luke 11, help us to keep those things in view this morning as we worship and as we interact as a church body. God, help us to rejoice in the truth of who you are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you the main point. And it's a main point we've used very similarly before in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to focus in on just one piece of it this morning. That main point is that the kingdom of God is a past, present, and future reality. We're going to talk about that present aspect this morning. Last week, Ben walked us through the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11, all about prayer. And Ben did a great job of bringing forward that what we're taught to pray is that God's kingdom would come and that we pray as his sons. That's what we've inherited, male, female. We've inherited sonship, all of the blessings that come with that. And we pray out of that sonship that God's kingdom would come here. And so as we're setting the table, one thing we need to do is remind ourselves about what the kingdom of God is. So that's where I wanna start. Let me give you just three Quick reminders. We've touched on these in previous messages, but they're worth bringing out right now. The first is that the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. That's what we're talking about when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. It's 
talking about God's rule, God's reign over all things, spiritual and physical, moving them toward the accomplishment of his will. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about something that is past, present, and future. It has come in Jesus' birth. It is coming as the Spirit works through the church, and it will come when Jesus returns again a second time. And then third, our role in the kingdom of God is submission to the kingdom of God. So our role within God's rule and reign over all things is to submit to God's rule and reign over all things. We don't bring in God's kingdom. We don't hasten its final consummation. We do not build God's kingdom. We do not hinder God's kingdom. The way that you could take all of those phrases would be to substitute in God's rule and reign. We don't bring in God's rule and reign. He is sovereign over all things. He rules, he reigns. We will not hasten when Jesus comes back a second time and fully and finally ushers in God's rule and reign. He decides that. He's already marked it out. He knows when that time is coming. We do not build God's rule and reign. It has existed for all of eternity and will exist for all of eternity. And we will not hinder God's rule and God's reign. He rules. He reigns. I'm not going to stop that. You're not going to stop that. Someone who doesn't believe in him is not going to stop that. I'm going to read you a lengthy quote from John Piper. I think he does a good job of summing up this idea of God's kingdom. A portion of it is going to appear on the screens, but there's going to be some more. The mystery of God's kingdom is the surprising fact that the kingdom comes in multiple stages, not just one. The king comes first on a donkey with a branch of peace and amnesty. Later, he will come on a great white horse with a sword of judgment. Many kingdom blessings have been fulfilled, but the consummation is still future. The New Testament pictures all of history in two stages, this age with its sin and misery and satanic power and the coming age with its righteousness and wholeness and freedom and joy. The mystery of the kingdom is that these two ages have intersected with the coming of Jesus. They now overlap. The age to come has in a sense begun, but this fallen age endures for a time. We live not between times, but in both times. We know Christ already purchased our healing, but we still groan with sickness. We have already passed from death to life, but we still die. We already have the sanctifying spirit as a down payment of our inheritance, but the war between flesh and spirit goes on every day. We have already been acquitted of all sin in Christ, but we must go on every day praying, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We already have our citizenship in the kingdom of God, but we must still submit in measure to the rulers of this world. In a word... Every blessing of the age to come is already ours in Christ, but God wills for us to come into the fullness of our inheritance patiently. The kingdom of God is a past, present, and future reality. It is theologically and biblically accurate to say that the kingdom of God has come, it is coming, and it will come. All three of those things are true. And so to link up to last week's message, if we're praying that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, then then we are praying that the rule and reign of God would be present here in an unobstructed, full, and complete way. And Ben did a great job of bringing this out from the end of that passage about prayer. That when Jesus tells us that God will give his children good gifts, and that good gift is the Holy Spirit, 
That means that we can trust God's goodness to give the one thing that brings about his rule and his reign. Him, himself, his spirit, the kingdom of God. The other table setting thing that we need to do here is to give a couple of reminders about Satan and demons. Now, we've seen passages already in Luke where Jesus casts out a demon, and we've made some points about that. We've talked directly about it. I just want to give some reminders that kind of sum up what we've seen so far. First, Satan and his demons are limited in their number, knowledge, power, and presence. All of the omnis that God is, Satan is not. All of the omnis that God is, his demons are not. God is unlimited in knowledge, unlimited in power, unlimited in presence. Satan is not those things, and we would do well not to ascribe to him power he does not have. Satan and his demons exist to resist, reject, and oppose God's sovereign and good rule. Satan and his demons exist because they rose up against the rule and the reign of God, against the king's kingdom. And so now they've got this counterfeit kingdom here on earth that God is overtaking. And then last, Satan and his demons are subject to God's authority. We've seen that as Jesus has been casting demons out and they obey. Let me give you one bonus one. Satan and his demons know that the war is lost, but they'll still fight it out to the very end. If you've been watching any uh, amount of the Olympics over the last couple of weeks, one of the things I love about the Olympics is that every athlete there knows that they're only going to give out three medals. And every athlete there knows that at a certain point, one of those medals is no longer an option for them. And yet, they don't just quit in that moment. They keep fighting it out. I was watching the men's marathon yesterday. It was very obvious within about half of that race that there were only like four or five people that had a shot at a medal. And yet the last place guy and the first place guy run that thing out all the way to the end. Satan knows he's going to lose and yet he's going to fight it out all the way to the end. In the Olympics, that's an admirable thing. In this case, it's super annoying just give up already, right? That, that's how we kind of all feel. There's the, the preparation we need to do now to really dive into what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 11. The kingdom of God, Satan and his demons, and Jesus does something here in Luke 11, the middle of the chapter, that is advancing God's kingdom, and there's a ton that we can learn from it. And so I want to highlight the three reactions that people have to Jesus's work. I want to highlight Jesus' responses to those actions. And then I want to give three reminders for God's people today. Look at verses 14 through 16. Now he, that's Jesus, was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul the ruler of demons, and others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. What is the kingdom advancing work that Jesus does here? He casts out a demon. The kingdom advances in a myriad of ways, both in Jesus' day and today. 
Wherever the rule and reign of God is seen, the kingdom is advancing. Wherever the rule and reign of God is submitted to, the kingdom is advancing. When Jesus heals, when he casts out demons, when he calms storms, multiplies food, works miracles, that's the kingdom of God on display through the work of Jesus in the gospels. When people submit to Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, the kingdom is advancing. When they proclaim Jesus, the spirit is working to advance the kingdom. The same realities are true today. When God's kingdom arrives, past tense, in the person of Jesus, to borrow from John Piper, with a branch of peace and amnesty, it comes with unprecedented conflict with Satan, his demons, and their false kingdom. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus is constantly confronting head-on evil in the very presence of Satan and in the presence of his demons. There are 39 Old Testament books. Only five of them even mention Satan. And in none of them does anyone, not a priest, not a prophet, not a judge, not a king, cast out a demon. When Jesus arrives on the scene, there is overt conflict with Satan and his counter kingdom, and it starts immediately. It starts in the wilderness with Satan directly, and then it ripples throughout the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. In all of it, God's rule and his reign, the kingdom is shown to be superior. All of that points us to the reality that with the coming of Jesus and the advancement of the kingdom through the church, Satan's false reign is crumbling. And it points us to a day when it will be fully and finally demolished when Jesus comes again. So Jesus is casting out a demon and what he is doing is he is invading Satan's false kingdom with the power of God's kingdom. That's what's happening. And there are some reactions to that. Verse 14 tells us that the crowds were amazed. Some are amazed by the advancing of God's kingdom. We don't need to say a ton about that. It's straightforward. Some people see Jesus do this and they think, oh my gosh, this is incredible. The people of God, Today, the church are amazed by the advancement of the kingdom of God. But not everybody's amazed. In verse 15, some are hostile toward the advancing of God's kingdom. They're willing to recognize that something incredible has happened, but what they're hostile toward is that Jesus could have possibly done this by his own power and his own authority. They want to ascribe it to something else. In fact, they actually want to ascribe Jesus's overcoming of evil to the power of evil. And they say, he must be doing this by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That word has a lot of sort of Old Testament Canaanite religious historical context that I don't really have time to get into, but Luke is using it as a term or a moniker for the ruler of the demons here. And so there's a group of people who think that Jesus casts out a demon because he must be the ruler of the demons. Their hostility toward the work of Jesus displays itself in an unwillingness to be amazed by the work of Jesus. This happens today in similar ways all the time. Maybe people don't name the awe-inspiring works of God as having actually been done by the very presence of evil, but their hostility toward the kingdom of God displays itself in an unwillingness to be amazed by the sovereign, powerful rule and reign of God. And then there's a third group in verse 16. Others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Some are skeptical 
about the advancing of God's kingdom. They want a sign. They look at Jesus and they say, confirm for us that this incredible thing that just happened was actually incredible. Jesus, wielding his authority as king of the universe over Satan's demonic forces is not incredible enough for them. They want something more and they ask for it. And the thrust of the sentence is that they will continually want a sign. The healing of sick people won't be enough. The feeding of thousands won't be enough. The calming of storms won't be enough. The raising of a dead child won't be enough. The casting out of a demon won't be enough. They're skeptical, yes, but they're also married to their skepticism. There is no sign that's going to compel these people to believe. That's the thrust of what Luke is saying. They're not in awe of Jesus's kingdom advancing work. It's also worth noting that they're not necessarily hostile toward it either. They're not openly opposing Jesus. They're also not submitting to Jesus. They're content to be skeptical, and Jesus is going to show us in his response that that's a dangerous place to be. So starting in verse 17, Jesus responds to all three of these Groups. And I'm going to take them in the order that Jesus gives them because it's not the same order that Luke recorded them in verses 14 to 16. From verse 17 down to 26, Jesus confronts the hostile. That's where he starts. Knowing their thoughts, he told them. And he starts by just pointing out how illogical their hostility is. A kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? It's totally illogical, Jesus says. There's a battle happening here. The kingdom of God and the false kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of God is advancing. And the false kingdom of Satan has absolutely no chance. God has won, is winning, and will win. Satan knows that, and he's certainly not going to divide against himself and make it easier for God. That's the illogic that Jesus is pointing out. Satan knows that he's going to ultimately be defeated, but even Satan is smart enough not to hasten that reality. Then Jesus points out the futility of their hostility against him. That starts in verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. He gives a short parable about a strong man and a really strong man. Jesus illustrates that the man guarding his possessions seems very strong and capable, but then a stronger man arrives and puts that man in his place. The point? Evil, Satan, demons, this counter kingdom, seems big and powerful and all-encompassing and unovercomable. I invented that word. And yet, God is bigger, stronger, and ultimately completely in control. Satan is clinging to what he thinks is his with every limited and finite power that he has at his, disposable, at his disposal for what little time he has left. And yet the stronger man is coming. The stronger man has come, that's Jesus. The stronger man is advancing as the spirit works through the church. And the stronger man will come back one day on a white horse and it will be undeniable. Your hostility is futile. 
Jesus is saying in that little parable. And then, starting in verse 24, Jesus just gives a truth about the nature of evil and Satan's counter kingdom. And the truth that he gives is that it is the nature of this counter kingdom to fight back. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest, it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. Evil will continue to fight back until it exists no longer. The kingdom of God advances and Satan marshals more force. The house is swept clean and unless it's refilled, it's vulnerable. Jesus confronts the hostile. You're illogical, your hostility is futile and the truth is evil is going to fight back. Then Jesus convicts the amazed. If you're someone who's placed your faith in Jesus, you've been saved, you're one of God's sons, you've inherited his blessings, Jesus doesn't just say, you're good. It's the nature of the work of God to convict his people. And so Jesus convicts the amazed. Look at verses 27 and 28. As he's giving this confrontation to the hostile, a woman speaks up, raises her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. And he said, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This woman pipes up and she doesn't know it, but she's just bit off a little more than she was prepared to chew. She offers praise to Jesus in the form of praising Jesus's mother. You're so great, Jesus, that even the mother who bore you and nursed you and weaned you and raised you, she is blessed and Jesus corrects her. And he says, my birth mother is not to be blessed because she gave birth to me. Those who are blessed are those who hear and obey the word of God. Those who are blessed are those who submit to God's kingdom. This is consistent with what Jesus has already said about those who are his family. Back in Luke chapter eight, verse 21, if you wanna go back and read that, jot it down. Jesus makes a statement about his family. My brother and my mother and my sisters are those who hear the word of God and obey. And then jump down to verse 33. In the middle of this whole conversation after having cast out this demon, it seems like Jesus goes on a tangent about a lamp and light and covering the lamp and darkness. We could take those four verses and apply them in a number of directions. But there's a convicting warning for God's people in that. Jesus makes the point you could sweep the house clean, but you've got to fill it with something else or else evil will try to fill it. You're going to submit to something all the time in all things. Ben made the point last week that when we sin, we're submitting to Satan's counter kingdom. 
And so when you submit to the kingdom of God, he has the power to come in and sweep your house clean. He has the power to take the darkness inside of you and fill it with light. He's sovereign and powerful over the forces of evil, Satan, demons, sin. But then when that house is swept clean, it must be filled with something. And Jesus says, you fill that house with light. That light comes in as we submit to the kingdom of God. That's our role. We submit, he's the king. He's building the kingdom. That's his role, not ours. We don't have the power to do that. He does. We don't overcome evil. He does. We don't possess the light. The light is shown upon us. Verse 36. That, uh, sorry, I read the wrong part. If therefore your whole body is filled with light, no part of it is in darkness. It will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. We don't sweep the house clean and then refill it correctly. He does. We don't fight off the strong man. The stronger man does. God's rule and reign is advancing by God's power according to God's will on God's timeline in God's world among God's people. He does not need our help. He asks for our submission. Our praise is good, but it needs to be matched with our submission and obedience. Jesus convicts the amazed. And then last, he cautions the skeptical. That's verses 29 to 32. This whole thing about a sign of Jonah. Something about Jesus' life and work corresponds to Jonah's life and work. And there is conflicting opinion about what exactly the sign of Jonah is. It could be his divine rescue from death. Jonah spent three days and three nights in a place of death only to be brought to life for the deliverance of God's people. Sound familiar? It could be his preaching of both judgment and repentance. God's messenger arrives to warn people of judgment and to point them to repentance. Sound familiar? It could be Nineveh's salvation. A people repent and turn to the Lord through the preaching of uh, God's messenger and are saved from God's wrath. Again, sound familiar? That's why Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. He cautions the skeptical. He makes the point right in the middle. Jonah, Solomon, pick your Old Testament figure. Someone greater is here and that someone is Jesus. He looks at the skeptical and he says, you want a sign? Read your Bible. I've given you thousands of them and every single one of them pointed to me and now I'm here. You're not getting any more signs. Keep watching. I am your sign. You won't be getting anything greater than what you're about to see as God advances his kingdom through my work. My work in my ministry, my work on the cross, my work out of the grave. Jesus cautions the skeptical that if they remain content in their skepticism, the very men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against them. The men of Nineveh had Jonah as a sign and they got the picture and Jesus is saying, you have me. What more do you need? I'm here and yet you want a sign? And notice, weaving its way all through this passage from beginning to end, is the reality of evil. There's the evil within the hostile. I mean, they're willing to say that Jesus' kingdom advancing work is the product of evil. 
And yet God's kingdom can overcome that evil. We rejoice at that reality. If God's kingdom were not able to overcome the evil of Satan's counter kingdom, none of us would be saved. There is evil, sin within every single one of us. And yet miracle of miracles, mercy of mercies, grace of all grace, it can and has been overcome by the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The one with the broom came and swept your house clean. The stronger man came and took over. There's evil within the amazed, which the kingdom of God can overcome. Sin still lurks at the door of my sinful, broken heart. There are places within our hearts and within our lives where we resist submission, and yet grace Of all graces, the Holy Spirit is present within you to show you those things so that you might submit. It is the goodness of God that points out the reality of our sin, that we might further submit and obey him. Jesus talks about that darkness that needs to be filled with the light that God shines upon us. There's evil within the skeptical. He says, you're a wicked generation. And that is an evil which the kingdom of God can and is overcoming. The kingdom of God is a past, present, and future reality. The rule and reign of God. It's existed for all of eternity and it comes in power visibly for us to see in the person of Jesus. It has come. It is advancing in power because of the work of God through his church by his spirit and it will come again in the future when Jesus returns. And when we see Jesus cast out a demon like this, you're getting a visible picture of the kingdom of God advancing, showing you that his kingdom is more powerful. He is the stronger man and he will overcome Satan, and it points us to a reminder that that's going to happen fully and finally one day at the end of all things. What do we do with that? I'm going to give three reminders for us as God's people. The first one is this. It's the same point I make basically every week. I just put it in different words. Giving away the end of every sermon. Our rejoicing is in the gospel. The stronger man has come. Verse 22, Satan seems like he's guarding the house with all of his weapons and all of his power and he seems big and strong and like you could do nothing about it and the good news is you can't because the stronger man, Jesus, has come and done it for you. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. If it were left up to you, you'd be hopeless. But there's a stronger man. And he's come in the person of Jesus Christ. The one greater than Jonah, the one greater than Solomon has come. The lamp has shone its light upon you. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were left up to yourself to advance the kingdom of God, you would lose. Bottom line. But you're not. And God has sent us this incredible picture of that reality in the person of Jesus Christ. We're gonna celebrate that this morning. We rejoice 
in the gospel. That's what we do when we take communion. If you've got your cup, go ahead and grab that underneath your seat. If you need to, if you need to get one, there are some available on the little trays, both sides of the sanctuary. If you've not used these with us over the last few months, top piece of cellophane gets you the wafer. Second piece opens up the juice. We rejoice in the gospel. When we take communion, we have an opportunity to to see that right in front of our eyes, to taste it in whatever delightful wafer form we've got in front of us. God gave this gift to his church so that we would remember to rejoice in the work that Jesus has done. The good news of the gospel is that the strong man has come and the stronger man has overtaken him. The good news of the gospel is that the stronger man is not just some human being who happened to have super power or something like that. It is the king of kings. The very king of the kingdom came in order to save his people. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ took the just punishment of a holy king. Ben talked about this last week. Upon himself. And then he triumphed out of the grave and overcame the strong man by the power of God's rule and his reign and his authority. And so when we take communion, we celebrate a broken body and spilled blood. We celebrate a king triumphant. Not just a king of the Jews, a sneering sign put up above his cross. We celebrate the king of the universe who has brought his people into his kingdom. That by their submission to him, the kingdom would continue to advance in this broken world as we look forward to the day it fully and finally arrives in his second coming. When we take communion, we rejoice in the gospel. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of the king broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance and in celebration of him. Brothers and sisters, this cup represents the blood of the king poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance and in celebration of him. What do you do when you read a passage like this in the gospel of Luke? You rejoice in the gospel. What do you do when you see the actual presence of evil in our world and God overcoming it? You rejoice in the gospel. Reminder number two. Our role is submission. Now that might mean that you submit to the reality of Jesus for the very first time. And the reason why that requires submission is because it requires recognizing that you need a savior and you are not that savior. You submit to the fact that you could not possibly save yourself, but that the king came in order to ransom you from the false ruler of the false kingdom. That is submission. And that is how the king ushers us into his kingdom.
But you also submit to the reality of his rule and his reign continually. Remember, God is the one who does the work of building his kingdom. That's why that first song we sang this morning, build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Unleash in us, we pray. Notice, we're not singing that we would do something amazing. We're singing that God would do something amazing. He builds his kingdom. We submit. He's the one who exercises his rule and his reign. And what the world desperately needs are Christians who are submitted to the kingdom of God above all things. Submit for the first time and you're swept into the kingdom. Submit continually and the kingdom is built in us. And as the church submits collectively, the realities of the kingdom are brought to bear in the world around us through us by the power of his spirit. The world does not need Christians who think that they are the ones building the kingdom. What typically results in from that is that we build our own kingdoms. And those kingdoms are never adequate substitutes for God's kingdom. We submit to him in our sanctification, and as we do, he builds his kingdom. That's the wild grace and goodness of God. That's the gospel we rejoice in. It is by his grace that we're moved to submit and to obey. It's by his grace that light is shown upon us. It's by his grace that Satan, the lesser strong man, is run out, and it will be by his grace that he returns and puts that to a full and a final end. Reminder number three, the result is secure. Any passage about the kingdom advancing ministry of Jesus ought to remind us about the certainty of God's kingdom. It isn't here in fullness yet, but we can be sure that it will be one day. And if you ever need that reminder, you're looking around at the world around you and you are overcome by the reality of evil and what seems like a very strong man doing very bad things in a world that we wish were better, just flip to the book of Revelation and remind yourself the end is secure and it has nothing to do with you. He's coming back. And what we get a foretaste of in the demon casting out ministry of Jesus, we'll get the full reality of when he comes back and says, hey, Satan, into that pit. And Satan says, yes, sir. That is the nature of the king of kings. He's coming back. And when he comes back, Satan is gonna give in. He's gonna fight until the very end. And I say this intentionally, he's gonna fight like hell until the very end. And when Jesus comes back on that white horse and says, Satan, it's over, he's gonna say, yes, sir, I'm out. And it's gonna be over. And we will enjoy the perfect, unobstructed rule and reign of God for all of eternity as God's people who are submitted to God's kingdom. Amen? Go back to last week. I've never heard a sermon illustration about prayer that involved potty training. (laughs) But it was very good, and I'm never gonna forget it. Because when we go before the Father with our weak little prayer lives, and we say, God, Father, holy, hallowed, glorious be thy name, your kingdom come. What are you praying? I mean, think about it. You're praying that the unobstructed rule and reign of God would come in your heart, in your life, in God's world, and nothing would stand in its way. And every single time we pray that, God says, yes! That could be the whole prayer. 
Look at what I'm capable of doing. I'm the stronger man. I'm the light that shines. I'm the one who sweeps the house clean. When we come before the Father and we pray your kingdom come, we are praying a prayer of submission. Because in order for his kingdom to come, we've got to submit to him and allow him to bring it. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand and worship together.